Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, it hasn't happened for years and it will challenge a few assumptions. The iconic, and I don't use that term lightly, Australian brand Arnott's and its marketing and agency teams landed the most coveted annual award for the serious end of town this year, the Advertising Council's Grand Effie which means it's the most effective advertising campaign in the country by proving a direct link to business impact and results. It is rare that a fast-moving consumer goods brand pulls off such a feat, but Arnott's has done it, and we've got some very interesting people on the mics. The results are impressive, which we'll get to a little later, but how they were achieved might bend a few perceptions. Arnott's opted for a master brand campaign on a portfolio of products that used emotional connection and... Yes, mostly television in 2022 and 2023. How absurd and anachronistic, particularly when it was all done under the hard, rational, analytical watch of Arnott's owners, US private equity firm KKR, which acquired the company in 2019 for circa $3.2 billion. But it's all true, and rather than me rabbit on, we've got the two co-architects of this grand plan on the mics today, Arnott's Chief Marketing Officer Jenny Dill and the CEO of Publicis Group, Mike Ribello, which owns Saatchi & Saatchi, Leo Burnett, Sapient, Starcom, Zenith, Spark Foundry and Digitas and a bunch of others, Mike. You're a, an empire builder. Welcome, Jenny and Mike. It's great to have you on the mics. Really looking forward to this one. Jenny, we might get to you first. How about some context or the context really on Arnott's before and after you joined mid-2020? What was happening inside the business? The challenges and opportunities KKR saw to do something with the company post-acquisition outside, of course, the surprise package that was a global pandemic. So welcome, Jenny. Yeah, just context. What was happening when you come into the business? There was all sorts of conversations going on. What did you see? What was happening? Mm, Thanks, Paul. When I joined in mid-2020, we were six months into new ownership under KKR. And I think the context of what was going on at the time was the business had been in sale mode for about two years. And whenever a business of that size and scale is up for sale, There's usually a lengthy process that goes with that and a lot of big initiatives get put on hold. So with KKR coming in with um, the growth vision that we'd set for the business, both from our owners and from the executive team, we were really clear that we were there to reignite the Arnott's portfolio to really drive growth on the brand that we all know and love and the sub-brands and the products as part of that and to make sure we were getting the business back into growth, both from a a sales perspective, a volume perspective, but most importantly from a market share perspective as well. So that involved not just growing the core business that and the legacy business that already existed, but make sure we were setting ourselves up to grow into new spaces. So to deal with the consumer needs and wants that we probably had not been as quick off the mark on some of the consumer trends and to make sure we were playing a very fast catch up in those areas so that we could grow both the legacy part of our business, but also these new emerging areas that were increasingly in hot demand. The reputation private equity has is often to strip, not invest. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they were doing it. KKR was wanting to invest in the business. When you talk about market share, was it back? What Where was it at when you joined in terms of, was it on the decline line ball? Where was it at? 
Yeah, it had been in a slow, steady decline for a few years. And the thing that really attracted me to the Arnott's business was such an iconic brand and a legacy of portfolio of brands that sat underneath it that I'd grown up with, that I knew there was so much power in and that there was a lot of opportunity and potential for. And the growth vision that we'd set as an executive team, but also with our new ownership. And the model was all about growth. So um, that's when I signed up. Signed up. And the consumer trends you talked about, mm-hmm. there was sort of not reacting as fast. What was happening at a market level and consumers on demand that you felt or you saw was not necessarily being responded to as fast as what it could have? What was there? Yeah, I think the fundamental shift was the way consumers are eating and snacking and how that's changed over the decades. So um, obviously more fruits and nuts and whole grains, more proteins this day and age, um, more free-from trends, so whether that's gluten-free or or other free-from trends. There was a lot going on in the marketplace that just wasn't anchored in our product portfolio from 10 or 15 years earlier. Mm. So we had some work to do. So when you arrived at 2020, what were the priorities as CMO in the first 18 months? What was happening with consumers? We've talked a little mm-hmm. bit about that. And product development, we've talked a little bit of that with sort of some curtain raises here. Mm-hmm. But what needed to change most? When you came in, what did you see? Yeah, so we had to build belief again in marketing in the organisation. We had to chart a course for growth for the next three to five years, a really clear strategic vision and something that everyone could sign up for that still had to be big and exciting and stretching but had to allow us to really reshape the business as we went forward. We didn't have a lot of time to do that. Like We literally had to get started pretty quickly. And we've now finished our first strat plan cycle, so the first three-year plan. We're ahead of plan where we said we would be, which is amazing. There's a lot we've done already, but there's still a lot to do if you think about our 10-year plan. So when you talk about you had to build belief back in marketing, was that within the marketing team or within the business that marketing had something to offer? Yeah, I think both. Um, If I'm totally honest, we had to make sure that we had really strong commercial orientation in the marketing team. And I think that's where some of the thinking behind every marketing dollar is an investment and what am I delivering as a return, as an outcome, and being really clear and being able to measure that. We can sell that back to, you know, my peers on the on the C-suite or we can sell it back to the board as a case for further investment. But being really clear on what results we were contributing to the overall business and how we were doing that. When you said you were ahead of your three-year plan, what were the benchmarks there that you've exceeded? So we set, obviously, numbers for market share and for sales growth, both volume and value. So okay. we're ahead of where we said we'd be. And what which are is they, great. Jenny? What's your market share? I'll come back to that in the business case, okay. if that's right, Okay, Paul. so you're not delaying the level. You're, I'm just going to get some answers here. This is exciting. Now Now I'm pepping up. The pandemic was okay for Arnott's in sales terms, right? But at some stage, you and the publicist team with Mike uh, here started thinking about a master brand campaign for the Arnott's product portfolio. One, that's pretty rare. So why did you go that way? Well, it may be, that's in my view, it's rare. But first up, sales, business was okay through the pandemic, right? Pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. We had we had more consumers staying at home, mm. buying more of their groceries from our key customers. And despite all the talk of everyone making their own sourdough banana bread, most people talked about it and didn't really do it. Right. So, um, Bought the components but didn't actually do anything <laughs> exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah. Sat there and looked at it and went, I'm just going to open up a packet of Tim Tams. So more people staying at home and snacking from home worked for us. So mm. we saw some really good modest growth through the pandemic. And particularly when we went to lockdown cycles, people tended to pantry hoard a little bit, which worked for us. So we knew at some point that was going to unwind and we better have a plan to grow beyond that and make sure that we weren't going backwards, we were building on that new renewed vigour in the portfolio and, and moving forward. Talk us through the pandemic. You're managing for decent demand, 
but you're also going, what next? What are we going to need to do? And you're working on your product portfolio as well, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. wasn't just, you know, reacting to the now, as in the pandemic, there was more going on. Yeah, we were figuring out how behind screens we could do new product development. And we had some of our team out in the pilot plant and we were shipping samples around the city and we were tasting them on Zoom calls and we were making decisions so that we could have a plan when we got back out of lockdown and back into the office. Because that sort of stuff takes time and you can't put it on hold and then expect it to just happen overnight. So you had some assumptions on product opportunity and category opportunity that was derived out of research from consumers that you probably couldn't, oh, I suppose you could do it on the phone, but where was the, the sort of the stimulus coming from? Yeah, we had a reasonably good model going into lockdown, if you like, right. that was brand new, that helped us shape our strategic plan and the growth plan going forwards. And we used that as the jumping off point. And we were obviously checking in with consumers, but we had live consumers in our groups as well. Everyone had their own households that were at home and mm. everyone was understanding things differently. So we were very quickly sharing amongst the the group what we were observing and where we thought the opportunities were and if it had shifted since, you know, 18 months ago and if we needed to do anything differently. But largely apart from being trapped at home the, and maybe a little bit more treating yourself because you were trapped at home and you wanted the emotional <laughs> kind of benefits yes. um, that came from, you know, a packet of Tim Tams or a packet of biscuits and a cup of tea or whatever it was, um, you wanted to just make sure we had the right plan coming out of it. So what were the, the key product development areas or category development areas that you had identified and you're working on through code before we get to go to market launch and make this thing happen through marketing and comms. What were the areas where? I think the big areas for product development obviously were making sure that we had a gluten-free range that was, it tasted amazing. In my house, that happens. There you go. Uh, It had to taste amazing. It had to be our biggest, most iconic products as well. And it had to be able to really taste as good as the original. And so we worked really hard on that. And I think we've now got a range that we're really proud of in the market, um, which is doing really well. And then the other things were things like portion control and healthier snacking. So with the launch of Snackrite recently, we've got more protein or more fiber. We've got portion control packs. We've got three and a half, four health stars as well. So we've got a range of healthier sweet and savory biscuit products that allow you to snack healthy mm. while you're uh, still engaged in the category. Those are the two core areas that you're you, They're you two of the on. big ones, yeah. Yeah. Maybe one of the interesting ones is that I do know for a fact that you produced Tim Tam candles, perfume, and cologne. Um, yes, and it might have sold out or something. It did. We we made some Tim Tam perfume, and um, it was amazing. It makes you smell like a Tim Tam. It, it was I super know. Good. I did. Sold out in I, I can't remember the number. It was one or two days, but it was a huge success and sold as much as the same price as Chanel, roughly. And which was huge. You're not bringing it back. Maybe selectively. Yes. Okay. Well, I was thinking some other other varieties, but we'll leave that one alone. So you had product, you had a plan coming, you had a, some inklings of what you're going to do when you come out of COVID and you started to talk to the team at Publicis about what you were going to do. Where did that start? How did it start? Hmm. Just talk us through a little bit of, okay, what are we going to do here? And how did you land on a, on a master brand campaign? It's typically unusual, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I think we actually started probably 12 months earlier with Shapes and Tim Tams, our two biggest brands, making sure that we had really clear- This is 2021 One-ish. Yeah. yeah. 2020, 2021. Um, with both Tim Tams and Shapes as our two biggest brands to make sure we had a really clear- proposition, a really clear advertising campaign and that was a platform that would allow us to build over time and invest more money 
in behind it to make sure we were delivering a return in growing. So we'd started there and we had some really good results on both Tim Tams and Shapes. And we needed to do something bigger. And obviously, Arnott's is the name above the door. It's the name that we've all grown up with. It's There's 157 years of baking legacy in behind the Arnott's name. So it's something that is a true Aussie icon and felt like if we could do if we could build a campaign that honoured both the legacy of Arnott's but without getting stuck in the yesteryear and land it very firmly in consumers of today and how they were consuming our products and how they were engaging with our products, it felt like it would be really powerful. Mm. And the maths behind it are, obviously, the bigger the brand, the bigger the impact if you're, if you're reading, reaching those sufficiency levels and, and driving the right impact and connecting and engaging and then making sure you've got the right media plan behind it. The maths behind it would say, if you can get it right, the payoff is huge. Mm. But we had a lot of work to do. Well, I was going to ask, so had you done one before? You're at Macca's for a number of years and, and a veteran at PepsiCo. Had you done a master? Did it happen? Not not as much. We started getting there in Macca's in my last couple of years. We did do a lot of brand work, but it still always felt quite disconnected. You had different platforms mm. and different things. And we wanted to have that umbrella that sat across the entire portfolio that allowed you to lift everything in the portfolio versus choosing that one piece of it to support or the other piece. And making those choices is is never really a win-win scenario. You're yeah. always supporting something and then starving something else, particularly in FMCG where you've got to make those tough choices. Really, that was really interesting. So Mike, you, you've been on the arc of Arnott's for a while. You've seen how it's developed. Maybe just give us a little bit of perspective from the outside on what you saw happening with Jenny coming on and through the pandemic, and then we'll get to the master brand work and how that got there. But um, first, your inside-outside observation on what's happened there in the transformation yeah, look, thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, we, we started working with uh, Arnott's back in 2018 and probably a year into that um, relationship, the uh, sale was announced uh, that Campbell's globally were looking to um, uh, sell the, uh, the international business. And so, as Jenny mentioned before, that does change the, the MO of the business because they're really trying to create the best possible business model for, for sale. And mm. it does change your objectives and it does change, I guess, how you go to market because there is a very clear objective there. So um, it was obviously uh, uh, an interesting and anxious time for an agency partner when yes. that's going on as well because uh, you're looking at new owners. What's going to happen? Let alone <laughs> a new um, management team, a new CMO. And whenever that happens, agencies get very, very um, anxious. So, And very charming. Very charming, absolutely. But then... I guess it's it's a lot of confluence here as well because then um, Jenny got announced during 2020 uh, mm -hmm. during COVID, so that was uh, you know and obviously the the um, announcement of of KKR's acquisition was was um, already in place. But so it was a, a very interesting time for both agency and client mm. at, at that period. But I guess what we um, really felt very quickly was a, a change in tempo uh, with um, with Jenny's leadership coming in and getting very focused around fewer, bigger bets, right? Uh, particularly around Tim Tams and Shapes and really a lot of focus on that. And then obviously the entire master brand portfolio as well. And there has been acquisition, there has been innovation as a result too over the years. So it's been a very different type of tempo working mm. with, um, with Jenny. The other big uh, thing that we noticed as in the agency partner was just a real laser sharp focus on measurement, right. tracking, making sure every dollar is accounted for, making sure every dollar is optimized, knowing where that dollar is going to give us the biggest return. Uh, and again, more focus into that investment. The um, analytics we were able to then have around the activity has been really um, enlightening for all of us. Mm. Uh, and, it, and it's certainly been a different um, culture, I'd say, 
in in I guess um, the leadership under under Jenny. Uh, and we've you know we we've um, you know we're sitting here today talking about a grand effy, which without that type of focus, without the investment and the thinking up front to build those measurement systems, I don't think we'd be would be here talking about a grand effy. Mike, um, the master brand work. So I sort of said it a couple of times, don't see a lot of it. Uh, and maybe it's just a romantic notion in my head of being old that I've seen them in the past, but not that much recently. Is that the case? You, you know, you work across a, a broad portfolio of clients as well. Is, is a master brand play rare? And how did you get to that point with, mm. with the Arnott's team? So I think it's really important to talk about the word master brand for a second, because mm. there's, there's, there's very few advertisers that actually have a portfolio of products and a, a master brand that has a lot of equity with the consumer as well. Mm. Master brand as opposed to a brand, a campaign, brand campaign, right? Yes, yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite a complex task in itself because you've got a brand so rich in history and legacy and, and uh, fondness like Arnott's, and then you've got a, an array of biscuit brands it's in itself that have such equal, uh, you know, affection, equities, desirability as well. So master brands are, are quite few and far between because of just the nature of what it's trying to do on a, at a portfolio level. Mm. But there's a lot of brand campaigns out there too. Yeah. What we have seen, I think, Paul, is um, there's certainly been a return to trying to drive the emotional connection between brands and their audience and their customer. And I think that shift has happened. I, I've noticed that over probably the last three to four years. Mm. COVID has certainly been a, a catalyst for that. I think in, in a world where everything that we knew changed, uh, and then you've got, I guess, broader um, societal geopolitics happening around the world too. The role of, a, of brands, particularly brands like Arnott's that have such reassurance to people, they trusted, people look to them for obviously the enjoyment of having a biscuit, but they do much more than that as well. Uh, we've seen uh, the role of brands becoming more important than it would just normally be. I think consumers and people have been looking for, for that in life. Mm. So um, we have seen also as a result of COVID, a lot of brands really appreciate the brand value they had been investing in over the years, really be paying its dividend in those times of crisis. And you intuitively and theoretically get that because, you know, and what Jenny's done is she's been really focused on building the, the, the net asset value of the Arnott's brand on the balance sheet because the business has made a major acquisition and the role of marketing is to make sure that that has a, an incredible return commercially. Mm. And, and so there's been a real focus on that. And I think that will hold Arnott's in really great stead for many, many, many years. And what we see now are brands who have been doing that over the years as well, through the period of these last um, two or three years post-COVID, have really seen the benefit of doing that because of the crisis, because of what the world has, has happened to the world. And I genuinely think, and you know, I've I was fortunate to judge the CMO 50 for a couple of years, and it's right. a great exercise of um, really getting a sense of what's happening in the marketing uh, world these days, because you read over 100 entries from a wide range of advertisers and CMOs. Did you like judge Jenny. Jenny's year? You did. I, I, I did, did, yes. Did you vote for her? I had to. Anonymous. Um, I had to, you know, declare my conflict of interest. Oh, of course, right. Uh, oh, you're, you're excluded, right. But, but you do get a good, you get a good vista a good, of what's yeah. happening on, right? Yeah. I'll tell you what I was seeing, Paul. I was seeing a lot more investment in brand. Right. And, and marketers seeing the value of doing that versus just performance. And performance has its place, don't get me wrong. But I think in the last probably five or six years, there's been a real uh, 
there's been too much focus on performance marketing. It's quite, you know, because there's some guaranteed results there for you if you're just churning through the, the bottom of your funnel and digital media allows you to harvest that uh, in, in, you know, in, in very, um, very efficient ways. Mm. Uh, but eventually what you find is that you're talking to the same people and you're not growing your audience. You're not growing your customer base. So brand is really important for doing that because it allows you to build desirability. It allows you to talk emotionally and connect. And we all know that emotion leads to, to, to action. Uh, and that's what we've seen through the the master brand campaign of Arnott's. And we see that with some of our other uh, clients as well, who do believe in the value of brand. I think Australia now, I, I do see there's a return to seeing the value of that. And we, I guess also we're seeing payback coming back a lot quicker than we may have necessarily seen maybe 10 years ago. I think the measurement systems are getting better. Uh, I think it's been expensive to measure historically too. Mm. I think that started to democratize itself as well. I think there's better products and systems in place, either through agencies or other partners that can be come in and at least give marketers a better view of the dashboard yeah. and what they're trying to impact. That's allowing better investment in brand because you can start to commercialize that and go back to and the probably board. articulate, right? So this is, I guess, one of the things I wanted to ask both of you on this front is that it's grandly ironic that in an acquisition play by a private equity company or a VC company or another company, they, they look at the brand value on the balance sheet and go, okay, there it is. And that comes into the equation of what the price they're going to pay for it. Then when you get them running, uh, when they actually take on the brand, the notion of uh, investing in brand becomes sort of slightly foreign and, and fluffy. And it's sort of like at a hard transaction level, it's there on the balance sheet and then managing it day to day, it's quite different. So it's almost like a, a two-step play on that one. The difference is, and I guess this is where we're going to get to, the difference is, is to be able to articulate brand value increase and brand impact on sales with good measurement, which is probably a good segue on where we're going versus conceptually talking it and trying to convince, you know, finance people or the CEO that, yeah, we should invest in brand because it works. I guess, Jenny, that's probably where your historical exposure to a whole bunch of things, including that McKinsey program probably is, is helpful in that. But um, just talk us through that brand notion because it can be, marketers can be seen to be a little bit airy-fairy without the measurement systems, which we're going to get to what you've done. Yeah, so lots in that question. There Paul. is. Let me, there was let a long me, one. Sorry. <laughs> let me try and unpack that. My view on this is every marketing dollar should be treated as an investment. Now you can have investments that pay over different time horizons on different initiatives, but you should be able to demonstrate a return because you're investing the company's money on behalf of the company to drive an outcome. So being able to demonstrate what's happened as a result is really important, particularly when you're buying nefarious things like airtime that nobody else can see. You can't walk out the back and count a pallet of airtime. Right. So you've got to be really clear that when we invested this amount of money, this happened as a result and here's the return. And I think for me, having investors on the board that are willing to invest to drive growth, it makes it even more important to be able to show when we invested this money, this happened as a result. And, you know, as a as a marketer that's been around for a little while, I can't walk into a board meeting or an exec meeting and say, oh, we think it's working. You know, 12 consumers liked us today on social media. It's not about the clicks. It's not about the likes. It's about what happened into your business metrics as a result. And being able to pull those apart is becoming increasingly important. And if you ever want to be able to submit to your your business, your exec team or your board, a case for increased investment, you better have a proven return model mm. because that's what you're dealing with. You're not dealing with someone who can talk about likes or, or you know, brand metrics or clicks in those rooms. You are talking about people who 
are quite willing to invest money to drive growth and deliver results, but they've got to see the proof in the pudding. And I think that's where the model that we've got now allows us to have those conversations. Now we get into some debates all the time and all the rest of it, but what you can see is very clearly a really clear, consistent step up in those results over time. What were the key components of it that you you introduced or changed or ramped up, Jenny? Yeah, so I think um, the first thing, which is a little controversial sometimes when you're talking about advertising, is we did pre-testing. Right. And we didn't do pre-testing to decide whether or not our consumers liked the ads or liked the creative. We weren't trying to test the creative. We were testing the message outtake and the branding outtake from it as a result. Right. And knowing that what we were intending to say was landing in roughly the right way and the right outtakes were there was really important. And if you look... So very quickly, Mike, what were they? What were you trying to land with the messaging? It was essentially about the um, connection that Arnott's would be making in people's lives and and the variety of little moments uh, that we all face and those the role that Arnott's does and has in bringing those uh, people together. Right, and reflecting that reflecting in real that, life. Yeah. Right. Sorry, so, Jenny, was it? Yeah. No, there's no substitute and making sure, or, you know, there was no substitute for those life's little moments mm. was really important. So testing that, obviously testing that people were taking the brand out because you can make an amazing piece of art and if no one can remember the brand name, mm. why are you doing it? Um, mm. It becomes a vanity measure at that point or a vanity exercise. So that was one. And again, we were using that in a very choiceful way. So it wasn't about testing the creative. It was about making sure the, less, the message from the creative was landing. So that was one. Um, the second was we brought in marketing mix modeling. I believe Arnott's had had one little foray to it in the past and then put it on the shelf and pretty much ignored it. Um, but we used it not as a, as a big stick to have tough conversations with, it was like, right, here's where we are now. What have we learned? What are we going to do differently as a result? Where are the opportunities to grow from here? And using an external marketing mix model provider to do that for us, Analytic Partners, help us also get a sense of the benchmarks in the marketplace. Who's Not who's doing it best with any confidential information, but based on what they're seeing on our metrics, how much gap have we got to best in class? How mm. much gap have we got to top quartile? Where are the opportunities for us to improve? And that was really, really important. Just in case for the listeners, some listeners who may not know what market mix modeling or econometrics, depending on how you know how you want to apply it, for you, how would you explain it and what areas were you using it in? So we were using it across all of our marketing investment. Okay. And we were using it to clearly understand what the business result was as an outcome of our marketing investment. Right. So we did- To sales. To sales. To sales, yep. yep. And to market share and to profit. Right. All three. And you can optimize that model to do different things. If you need to grow share this year or this quarter, you can definitely swing the mix. If you need to be driving profit, you can swing it the other way. But having those those data points at your fingertips allows you to make better business decisions as a marketer. Mm. That's the main thing. But we used it to really decomp our whole mix so we can understand what our base sales rates is if we did no advertising at mm. all. We can understand the impact of our trade. So our version of performance Marketing is effectively the trade, you know, the, the in, in sale store, promotions yeah. that you see in store. Yeah. So we can isolate that as well. So we can very clearly understand where we're investing money and what return it's. Just out of interest, baseline sales, does it vary greatly by product? So is it ranging from, I mean, what is it? I mean, I know I hear some I've heard sit around 70% baseline or thereabouts, but what is your range? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely in there, anything from 40 or 50% oh, right. up to 70%, depending on the product. So there is quite a range. Mm. and. Typically, the things that are higher baseline sales are much more memorable, much more top of mind, much more loved brands or products, much more unique. So there's no interchangeability and probably promoted a little bit less. So it allows your base to grow a bit more. Mm. But we're clear across the portfolio what the various tools are and what the various levers are we can pull to drive performance harder. 
the higher baseline sales is just not a function of being in market for an older brand, for instance. It's not nearly. It's not, not always necessarily. That. Yeah. Not so necessarily. I don't. I don't have the privilege of having a look at this data, and I, one day you'll show me when you're retired, and I'll, I'll go, "Wow, that's how it works." <laughs> um, so really interesting. So then, then what happened? So you. That's the core bits of the measurement. We also brought in some um, media benchmarking as well, just to make sure we were understanding how we were buying our media versus a pool. Right. Um, and what elements of our mix we should be doing a bit more of or doing a bit less of mm. to help us make the right choices across channels, across platforms, across media lengths, across sponsorship or free to air, across prime time, across, you know, off peak, all of those things were included as part of that. So it just, again, provided us with areas of opportunity where we could then choose what we're going to do about it. And how did this work? How did, I mean, was that sort of almost a new area opened up for you, Mike, in terms of going, oh, we've got some data here to see how, you know, what we can do. What, what did it do? And how often do you see this Look, applied? Paul, it's the holy grail. Mm. Like you could, everything that Gina just said is every agency partner wants to genuinely understand what their product, what their idea, what their output is going to do for a client's business. And that's not always the case. And it's We've obviously embraced it because we can really see uh, the the impact and the value that um, we we bring to a partnership. It isn't the case everywhere. That's the the bottom line. And I think um, it's to do with a number of things. It's investment. It's, this is um, it's vision. It's investment. It's time. It's to it takes a lot of um, the team's time, uh, Jenny's team's time, to make sure that they've um, can t- can organise the business in in the, in that way to ingest that data. That's you know, I wouldn't even know the first thing about what Jenny has to do back at Arnott's to make sure make that, it happen. to yeah. make it happen. Yeah. But that's considerable time and effort, I think. There is some, I think generally not every brand or advertiser views the role marketing can play on commercial impact as highly as, say, Jenny and Arnott's. We've got, uh, there's a lot of categories where it's it's kind of marketing is because you have to do it. Uh, and it's, if you're not there, you'll be missing out. Whereas there are uh, some brands, some categories that really can see the impact uh, that advertising and media investment, maximizing weeks on air, can literally have in a in a shopping trolley, mm. or in and and there's different categories: banking and finance, auto, FMCG. They they can really measure and see the value marketing has to the C-suite. So, um, I think just there's a, there's different views on what does success look like and mm. and and what why you'd want to measure that success. Uh, some some um, organisations are very happy with very, you know, the the classic uh, criteria, which is you know, your brand tracking, your quarterly brand tracking reports, the impact onto sales, lead generation, um, what your leads are coming through, your your your, your CPMs and all of that. So there's, there's, there is enough out there already, but really isolating the impact and really defining... Now, with everything else um, taken into consideration, the role of your advertising and and and, and media, uh, that that's that's a fine art. Yeah, you know? it really and, is. and just um, to both of you, really, that link in, in, when you see econometrics and market mix modelling done well, what is the link and relationship between that when you particularly when you got sales uh, and business impact down at that profit sales level? to brand tracking. What happens there? Is there a correlation that you can start getting predictive on or, yeah, I'm just interested. Yeah. Some of the key brand tracking metrics you can triangulate back. Some of the more vanity metrics, shall I say, just they don't What's a vanity metric? Well, something that we might track just because we want to make ourselves look good. Okay. Right, right. (laughs) So um, if you think about the key things that really drive overall 
sales behavior for us. It is overall awareness, yeah. really important. Top of mind awareness. So without being prompted, what am I, what's, what's in the top of my brain when I walk into a supermarket or when I'm thinking about making a purchase decision? And then the breadth of the appeal of the product and who it's appealing to. So I don't want you to think through all of this that we've optimized within inch of our life because I still see plenty of opportunity in what we've got out in front of us. And they're all choices on how we put the portfolio together in the right way to get the right outcome. And at the heart of it is starting with the creative, which is all about connecting with with your consumers in the right way. So, you know, with a legacy brand like Arnott's, the very core of the insight was we knew we had a business opportunity, but we had to figure out how to make sure we were going to unlock that business opportunity. So it was understanding the brand deeply, what's on it's known and loved for, how do we connect and engage with consumers? What are the most compelling things that we can talk to our consumers about? And where there's all those little rituals on the Arnott's products, whether it's the Monte Carlo twist, twist and lick, yeah, whether yeah. it's the Vita Wheat Worms, whether it's the Tim Tam Slam, we've got such a rich legacy created by people well before us that we can tap into. And it's what people know and love about the Arnott's portfolio. And that tagline of there is no substitute has been around for over it's older than Mike, right? It's definitely older than any of us. Right. Um, we can't actually pinpoint when it first oh, started, right? but we yeah. think it's back in the early 1900s. So wow, it's right. been around for a long time. And a lot of marketers attempted to change packaging, change logos, change taglines. And what we actually said is, no, let's tap into that really rich vein of connection with Australians and let's figure out how to bring it to life today for today's Australians. And so that connection is the heart of everything we did and it allowed us to deliver the results we delivered. And we couldn't have done that without great consumer understanding and great understanding of the brand and figuring out where that sweet spot between those two things was. Your quick observations on that, Mike, sort of the, the, the link between brand tracking, because that's essentially the default, right? It, it's a default for the industry for a lot of marketers if they don't get to, you know, some of the stuff that you guys are talking about here and, and with econometrics and market mix modeling down to sales. And it's always that it's the brand tracking. And sometimes that's the gap for credibility when you're talking further up the food chain to the exec, you know, exec team C-suite where it's like, okay, emotional. Yeah, well, give us the hard numbers. And this is what clearly you've done here. Yeah, look, it is the big leap you have to take. And that's where I think we come unstuck because you're going brand tracking, you're shifting these metrics to increase or um, move a, a level of desirability in that brand. Then you're trying to correlate that down to the inquiries, lead generation, and then you're taking another leap through to sales conversion. Mm. So there's quite a few uh, you know, steps in that process when you're talking, when you start at brand tracking. So that's, you know, the industry for the past 25 years is how we've been able to try and build a case around that. Uh, so that's why when you do so have- So jagging those, them together. Yeah, it's assumptive sometimes, mm. it's theory, it's um, using as many of the other factors that you know at the time, media investment at the time, what's happening with your competitors. You've got to, you know, build out a, a scenario. You're basically building models to work out well, what is the true impact of that of that brand uh, mm. campaign on, on the overarching, you know, level of desirability and differentiation. It has been, um, you know, this is why probably, you know, to your earlier question, the the brand advertising, master brand work, it, it you know, it has not always been the go-to for clients and advertisers to build a business case or build a, build a business. Mm. All of this does get us, though, to a really interesting catalyst moment, probably about this time last year, where both of you were at, at the last year's uh, Effie's 
Jenny, maybe start with, you know, what happened at last year's Effies. Yeah, I remember um, at the end of the night, Mike and I had a bit of a chat and we're like, wow, we've got great results, but we've got no Effies. What's going on? How do we how do we make sure we take the intent of what we're doing and the work we're about to deliver and the results we can already see in market because we're because you'd launched been, the, the master we'd already brand campaign. Launched. Yep. So we had a couple of months in market already and we knew the results. And how good? High single, <laughs> double digit, um, double digit growth. Yeah. Wow. Well, right. Yeah. Okay. Market share growth and uh, for the portfolio growth. and by individual brands that were featured in that well, were in there. Right. Correct. Right. Yep. So even so, Tim Tams, a monster, a monster in terms of volume, it was up double digit. Yes. Wow. Spectacularly. Wow. Yep. There we go. Yep. Sorry, I, mm-hmm. I, got, I got excited there. Yep. I'll, I'll pull my head in. Now, Tim Keep Tams going. had its best year ever on record. We've had three years of double-digit growth in a row. Wow. Keep going. <laughs> um, so we were talking at the end of the night. And we're like, right, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to figure out how to take this master brand work that we had seen some really, you know, two to three months worth of results in market on. We could see market share growing. We could see volume growing. We could see the sales growing. We had to figure out how to turn it into a case study. So luckily we had a bunch of tracking already in place, but we had to make sure that we really had built the right case study that we felt allowed us to step change what we were doing and turn it into a great Effie's case. Mike, your version of that one in that you were sitting there going, yep, we could do this. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, to be honest, Paul, you were at the table as well. I you do remember. Just you overhear the conversation. but um, uh, I saw you talking intently and I yeah. saw steam coming out of your ears, Mike, but that was, that's all. <laughs> there was definitely a few expletives look, as well. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's the competitive spirit when we see that we've got such great um, early results. And then I think from the results of that night, um, Jenny and I were like, well, we've got an objective here. We've got to focus on uh, on making sure that we are going to be able to continue to, to fuel the success, but also capture the data, start to interpret it, start to build an outline for what uh, a great Effie's uh, case study uh, can be. Because it, it isn't easy, because you have to absolutely isolate the impact of advertising on those um, sales results. And I've worked with a number of clients where... They've got, they've got the data, but don't want to share it because there's some confidentiality issues. So having yeah. a client that's really willing to kind of share this and go, right, let's make sure we can, we can, um, uh, use whatever we've got to build the best case and something more often than not, they don't even have the data. So we had it and it was just about making sure we had the right story to, to bring to life the success of the, of the master brand, uh, campaign. Per usual, uh, way behind with you two in terms of what we need to cover. So, Mike, just talk us through what you ended up building. So, we know you you had early results in the FEs last year. They were looking good. What was it about the campaign that was working? Why did it work? I think this is where, you know, great creative comes to life. And, and it was just beautiful storytelling of trying to encapsulate all the different moments and those rituals that some of these iconic biscuit brands have created on um, through their own role in, in people's lives and just bringing that to life. So there's a lot of intergenerational moments, lots of diversity in, in, um, in how and, and where and when you would, you know, have a, a, a biscuit from Arnott's brought to life. And it's, it's just very affectionate, very light. There's lovely, beautiful personality and tone. There's a beautiful music track to it as well. So it's just really great film experience. But it had to work for everyone, right? It wasn't just for, it yeah, wasn't so, a teen or a groovy right, it, young person like me. Well, yeah, when you're talking master brand portfolio and you're looking at the, the, the biscuit brands that we featured there, it encompasses all of Australia, a lot of walks of life and different types of occasions and moments. So it did that in a way that felt very natural and authentic because sometimes these types of briefs, a creative person will go, okay, this is a 
this is going to be a real uh, challenge, right? So that was able to pull it together in a way that just felt really genuine and people would sit there and watch it and they could relate to themselves because, again, you have a great product, you've got a, uh, rituals and, and those habits that people automatically connect with when you show it on, on screen. So uh, it was executed, you know, um, yeah, it really, was. Really, it was really even, well. even so I'll give you execution's that. really important in these mm. um, in these types of master brand campaigns. Does Arnett skew older? Older than some categories, younger than other categories, I'm yeah. assuming. Um, yes. I, I think that the science of why it worked was it appealed to more people more of the time for more of their occasions. So the breadth of the the scenarios that we showed allowed us to do that, mm. which actually helped us really lift the entire portfolio. And I think um, when you get under the skin of it, we didn't have one single story arc that had the classic payoff in the last three seconds of the ad either. So we kind of bucked the trend a little bit on that. And we had, you know, what is best described as a beautiful montage of amazing warm moments. And coming out of COVID, you know, the the little mm. things in life were the big things. We all realized we took a step back and reassessed our lives and, you know, lost some of those external trappings that had been previously important. And we were very focused on family and friends and that circle of loved ones as the most important things in your life. And we just, we tapped into that and we demonstrated that with our portfolio. And it wasn't trying hard. Obviously it, it resonated. That's the whole point authentically. Yeah. Little Moments Light of touch. Joy was mm. the campaign name. And I think that's really what people were missing. Uh, and we were able to kind of show that that's still within everyone's reach with a packet of Tim Tams. In the communicate, the channel mix, uh, a lot of TV in this, what, 80, 90%? Yep, a lot, a lot yeah, of TV. Yeah, we started there. Um, absolutely. And that was the deliberate plan. So we knew we had to have big impact quickly and we had to deliver the right weight of messaging into the marketplace to drive that impact quickly. So TV was the logical place for that at the speed we wanted to go out, at yeah. the pace we wanted to go out. Fast and reach, the as they say, with television, right? Absolutely. And, and with the beautiful film we had to share as well. So it was the obvious best place to see it. But then the plan was always to move on to um, smaller screens and more flexible formats with video. Mm. Um, I'm not sure this is a static campaign. I don't think it makes sense in, in static environments. But for anything that is a screen, absolutely, it's, it's definitely part of the mix. Was it deliberate right up early on terms of media strategy, Mike? Because obviously, you know, just to be clear for the listener, uh, Mike's business, Saatchi did the creative and the media was done by Spark Foundry. Spark Foundry, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Look, I think with you, when you're looking at your audience and the um, broad population that Arnott's uh, reaches, TV is going to be your most effective. And again, to get that- uh, Even for the younger up, set. Even for the younger set. Yeah, to get we, started, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we moved into YouTube as well and, mm. and, and other formats. Right. But really to build that mass reach quickly. And we were on on, on air for 52 weeks as well. So we- oh, Every week? Yeah. Oh, uh, always on, right. Okay. So um, it's it's it, it did scale. We had to scale very quickly. Mm. Um, so, and, and look, it's um, it's still a, a, a very um, popular channel, TV. So yeah, it worked. What's the budget range for this? Range, Jenny. So notice I didn't ask for a hard figure. <laughs> it, it is probably one of the smallest budgets for a grand every winner in recent years. Um, but we made it look really big. So we spent around $5 million on this campaign as it headed into the grand, the grand FE case study, which is not a huge budget, any stretch no, of the imagination. Fair. No, it's not massive. Um, I mean, but, I wouldn't mind it, but... Yeah, we just, we just made it work really hard. Um, so we were really clear with where we wanted to be seen and where we wanted to show up. And I think the beauty of the, the model we have where we've got creative and media in one conversation, yes. driving an outcome really quickly allows us to, uh, allowed us to get there faster in terms of the 
the iterative decisions that were made as part of the development. I mean, we bought the we bought the ad in the first meeting, right? The first creative presentation, oh, okay. like it was that clear that we had a winner on it. When you came in to Arnott's and publicists had that sort of combined setup where everything was sort of well, media and creative together, plus a whole bunch of other things. Had you worked in that scenario before? Were you were you skeptical? Were you a, a sold already? Were you a fan before, or did you want to see it work? Yeah, I'd worked in that model in a, in uh, the PepsiCo business back in the UK a decade earlier, but hadn't worked in that model recently. And I think I'm probably described myself as a healthy skeptic when it comes to pretty much anything. So I came in with you know eyes wide open, willing to you know learn, and had a healthy skepticism about me as I was, you know, particularly in the first six months as we were figuring out what we wanted to do and how we could chart the way forward. But what we found was that the more you have those media and creative conversations together, it means that anything you're doing on the media side is impacting the creative side and vice versa. You're making decisions with that one lens. Mm. So you, you need great creative and you need a great media plan to make the connection that you need with consumers. I don't know how to do it with just one or the other. Does it work for everyone, Mike? Yes. It does. It can yes, and should. It should. Look, I think what what it does, uh, it, it brings alignment and it takes a lot of the work out of the client's um, own ecosystem, right? Because they usually have to manage. Manage multiple stakeholders. So when, when we self-regulate, we do all of that heavy lifting because you've got strategic alignment, uh, you've got sharing of insights, you've got richness of uh, conversation happening. You've got TV buyers knowing what the idea is well before it's even been shot. That never happens. Yeah, right. So we, you've got, and that might just sound pretty basic and simplistic, but it's w- what happens around that that gives greater understanding. That that media uh, team can go and pitch it to the publishers knowing full well what their core the integration virus. opportunities yeah. and all that. Yeah. So you can start to do that well up front and then you can buy that more, um, you know, efficiently. And creatives and the creative teams and the brand strategists start to understand the media uh, a lot better as well. So it just helps bring all that synergy together where, and it takes a lot of the pain out for the, for the client to try and manage an ecosystem of egos and agendas. And yeah. so it, 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 it works. works. Yeah. And you're doing it for sort of Westpac, is that right? Uh, yeah. We're doing it for Toyota, for Westpac. Okay. Arnott's was our first big power of one client. Right. Uh, so yeah, we're doing it for a number of clients. I've got so many questions there, but got to go. Jenny, we got a little bit of a glimpse on results. Tim Tams, that's pretty impressive for a big, old, established brand to have that sort of growth. Who are you calling old? Uh, no, the Tim Tams, not you. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, and ironically on that one, you know, I got a couple of 17 to 21-year-old, they're into Tim Tams, so it's not an old brand, right? But anyway, overall, mm-hmm. the, the results here, How did what did you package up to the exec team and the board mm-hmm. about this working what did you say? And what were the numbers you presented in detail, please? So uh, we've seen 2% volume growth. Yep. Uh, we've seen- Which means what? on vo- what's, a, what's the volume? Volume kilos. Kilos. Yep. Righto. So 2% kilo growth. We've seen 10% sales growth in dollars, and we've seen a three quarter of a share point growth. And that's aggregate across your portfolio, is across that right? Across the Arnott's portfolio yeah. for the case study that we delivered, which was the grand FE. So that was the that point in time. And the ROI- that we put into the grand effie case was $2.60, which is gross profit ROI for every dollar we invested in marketing. GP, right. GP. Okay. So the way that works is basically where most of the growth happened was in lighter buyers, in people who, and in products that were lower down the awareness. Mm, they benefited, right. They benefited. So we had a disproportionate lift in some of those. But again, because we're appealing to more po- more people, across more of the portfolio for more of their occasions, that's the mass and how it worked. 
So some really strong results. And I I know for a fact, we're going to get even better results as we keep going on this. So Mike, quick observations on the results and numbers you see it across the different sectors and categories. Those numbers in big categories like this, that they're hard mm. to move. Like they're hard to get those ones. For super brands like Tim Tam, yeah. they're phenomenal. Like yeah. When you've got so much market share already to try and move those brands and even just get, you know, uh, a quarter of a percentage point, that's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big task. It's really big heavy lifting here. So, sorry, Jenny, um, you did say, was it 1.5 share in improvement? 1.5 points? 0.5? Three quarters of a point. Three quarters. And, and yep. what is the... What Total is the, biscuits. Yes. And what is the value of that oh, sector? Oh. It would be 1 billion, 600 million? The sector's definitely closer to 2 bill. 2 bill. Okay, mm-hmm. right. So uh, mm-hmm. si- there we go. Significant. Yep. Okay. I've got to leave you alone with this last question. Everyone's thinking about next year. Everyone's worried. This is brands, companies, every, finance people the cost of living crisis, what's going on, what's, how consumers going to respond. Both of you, your crystal ball on this one for next year. What, what's driving you right now, Jenny? What are you thinking, feeling, and how are you managing for that? Yeah, so 90% of our portfolio is sold for less than $5. So our focus is on making sure that we remain great value to our consumers. We, re- we maintain the trust that we have with our consumers and that they continue to love us for who we are and what we do for them. What we are seeing is again as consumers tighten their belt because this is really really tough out there Mm. is people are making choices on what goes in the basket every single week people are eating out less they're they're spending more time at home kind of like COVID again and what we're also seeing is a flight to the trusted loved products that the whole family enjoys or the whole household enjoys depending on your your household setup what we're seeing is it's taking a little bit longer to get some innovation off the ground. So new things that I haven't tried before are a little bit more risky when people are tightening the belts because every five dollars matters. Much. And I mightn't be as willing to try it unless I know it's from a brand that I know and love. If it's a small brand I've never heard of, I may not pick it up. So we're just seeing a little bit of risk on yeah, on some of the innovation trial rates. Right. Um, just again based on I've got a certain amount of dollars to spend. I want to make sure that nothing gets wasted. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing across the board in grocery at the moment. Trading down, trading down. I mean, you'd benefit from trading down outside the category, but what's happening inside the category? You're seeing people trade both ways. Right. So for the things you really, really want and love and value the most, you're willing to pay for it, whatever it is. And for the things you care less about, you are willing to trade. And that's what we're seeing. So our job is to make sure as brand owners that we're in the brands that are loved and can't be traded Mm. off. That's where Tim Tams comes in. There is absolutely no substitute for a Tim Tam, but that's our goal is to make sure that we are in the right place and that we continue to remain affordable and great value for our consumers. So you're going to keep st- marketing the same way? You're going to continue this brand effort, the multi, the master brand effort? That's 100%. all going to happen? Yep. And we've shot some new scenes to add into the mix. So we've, you know, we've got new products and new scenarios to add in, not to totally change the plan, but to, you know, in the 10 or so scenes that we've shot, we're going to probably roll two out and roll two or three new ones in to keep the mix fresh and interesting and keep talking about more of the portfolio. Mike, what are you seeing? We've probably got the Arnott's perspective. What are you seeing across your client portfolio for next year? Pre-Melbourne Cup, Paul, I think we were more optimistic. I think the interest rate uh, rise hasn't helped anyone's um, um, mood. If you're looking at what's happening now, mortgage, mortgage stress, rental stress, I think that's going to, you know, I think first quarter next year will really uh, define the, the tone for the rest of the year is my sense. I think people will... Uh, just really trying to get to the finish line this year, uh, mm. get to Christmas. Me too, by the way. <laughs> take a break. And then I think the mindset and, and, and people have had a few weeks to uh, and months to really understand what the interest rate environment is doing for their household budgets. I, I can't underestimate 
that what that impact that the last one has has really had. Mm. We're seeing um, a flat year, uh, I guess, in terms of the the overall industry, uh, in terms of the the media investment, uh, and hopefully by this time next year, we're we're through the 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 um, the nail biting, um, you know, RBA. Uh, interest, interest rate, rate ride. reviews and and we're we're back to a more optimistic and front footing economy and, and and mindset. But I think we're going to see a very similar year to this year, with my sense. Okay, uh, so clients are still doing less sort of launches, innovation to even Jenny's Look, point. What we've seen is um, marketing BAU has tended to continue its investment. That's been um, a pretty consistent theme we've seen across an, a wide range of categories. Where we've seen probably more pullback, uh, holding and 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 um, shelving of plans has been really in any kind of major investment in experimentation, innovation of the digital kind that requires capex investment, mm. uh, and that's clearly linked to um, the, the the cost of uh, of money getting more expensive uh, these days. So I think that will continue for the first kind of quarter of next year. But we actually seen you know clients like Arnott's and seen the return continue to continuing to invest mm. uh, and because we all know we're going to come out of this. So you want to make sure your brand's still in, in, the, in the best position possible, but not everyone has that luxury. Jenny Deal, Mike Rebello, congrats on the Grand Effie. And I guess the final question is, are you going to get one and again again this year, next year? I mean, I won't go for the Grand Effie, but do you think you can get another Effie based on what, you know, I know, putting you on the spot here? So um, well, obviously we can't predict any outcome of, of the medal at the Effie. So I would love to win another Effie. I think we're going to have the results based on what we're seeing now. We'll have another strong case study which builds on the first year. Mm. So, again, we've taken those results and we've built on them even further. And we're going to put our best foot forward and, and then we'll we'll see where we go from there. But, you know, we're continuing to invest. We remain cautiously optimistic, I think, for the year ahead, um, but really focused on delivering great value through great brands at a great price. And I think that's 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 all we can do to put ourselves in the right spot. Anything I can remind you of in a year's time, Mike, about getting another award? Do you think it was? Look, I definitely think there's um, uh, some continued focus and there's some categories there that will be more viable, like long-term uh, brand performance. So mm. two years of this, I think we're going to be in a really great position uh, for, for Arnott's uh, to to enter into that category. But yeah, look, ROI again, I think we got a, we got a silver this year. The only ROI uh, FE awarded, I think with the ROI that we, we might um, increase through the continued optimization of the campaign might put us in a better uh, standing for next year too. So let's see. Well, let's have you back on the mics next year. Letting you Love go. To, Thanks for joining. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.